Thank you so much for hitting the play button on this episode of A Duff Said. I'm Duff Tyler, and on this edition, we are taking a trip back in time. November 14th, 1998 was one of the first adventures that I had with the man who would go on to be the best man at my wedding. Also on that night, I met Bob Knight the Hall of Fame college basketball coach that won more than 900 games in his career and collected three national championships while at Indiana University. The man is an absolute legend in the state of Indiana. He was highly revered in my house when I was growing up, and my only encounter with him was rather dubious. So much so that Matt couldn't help but mention it in his toast at my wedding. As we were getting prepared for the ceremony this evening, Joe actually kind of threw something out that kind of stuck with me. He happened to mention that Duff and I were about to take our last walk. And I don't think he meant it in a Green Mile sort of way. I think he meant it in a very nice sort of way. And it reminded me of the long journey that we had been on and the one that he was about to embark upon with his bride. And it reminded me also of another little stroll that we took very early on in our friendship. And I have a prop. This is a very old artifact of our friendship, and it reads 1998-1999 Indiana Basketball Photo Pass for Indiana State from Saturday, November 14th. And we used to be joined as a member in a club called Sycamore Beat at Indiana State University, and it was a club that every two weeks we would put on a little campus news show. And Dove and I had the opportunity to go down to Bloomington to take Indiana State University's and Indiana University's first basketball game at Assembly Hall. We got to sit down on the floor, we got to tape a half a piece, and then we got to go back into the press room to act as press. And I think Dove finally realizing where I'm going with this. If any of you know Bobby Knight, the fireball of a coach that we used to have at IU, he didn't like the press very much. It's an absolute crock of You know, you people in the news media, all of you uh, dwell on some negative piece of like that. Just And you don't have to bleep one single word of this. Just remember when you're at a game and you see grass, it's the opposite side of the ball. But if you see hardwood out there, it's the other end of the floor. Try to help you young guys in this profession you've chosen that's one or two steps above prostitution. If it amazes you, then you don't know anything about basketball. You're, you're uh, uh, illuminating your uh, relative lack of knowledge of the game with a statement like that. Let's just start all this again. Now, I'm not here to argue the thing with you. I'm not going to debate things with you and people from television. You know, you want an answer from me, you get the answer. You don't like an answer, then don't use the program, okay? Who the hell told you I wasn't going to be here? I'd like to know. Do you have any idea who it was? Yeah, I do, Coach. Who? I'll point them out to you in a while. They were from Indiana, right? No, they're not. No, from weren't from Indiana, and you didn't no. get it from anybody from Indiana, did you? Could we please No, I'll, do, I'll handle this the way I want to handle it now that I'm here. You f***ed it up to begin with. Now just sit there or leave. I don't give a <laughs> what you do. And we were pressed that night. <laughs> we got to sit in, and we got to listen to Bobby field questions for about 10, 15 minutes. And I was safely behind my VHS camera, and then I see a hand go up next to me, and I just kind of go, oh, no. <laughs> and I remember Duff saying, so Coach Knight, overall, would you say that you were impressed with the Sycamores play this evening? 
recalling that this has been 10 or 15 minutes of him talking about the Sycamores and the Hoosiers play, and I remember Bobby giving him that thousand-yard stare and going, What the hell have I said since I've been in here? I mean, do, do you understand English? And Doug took it in stride. He was a little bit pale, maybe a little sweaty palm, but he just kind of stood there. Fielding the answer, okay. And I can just remember sitting there thinking to myself, I am so glad I am not him right now. <laughs> but looking back in retrospect, I can say that's a story that I'm talking about 12 years later. It's a story that he'll have for the rest of his life that he got dressed down by Bobby Knight in Assembly Hall. Yep, never going to live that one down. And now to go more in depth with that is the guy you just heard from. He's been a close friend of mine for the last 23 years. It's been ride or die with Matt Alm. In fact, it was almost ride or die to Assembly Hall that night in his old Honda. Matthew Alm joins us right now on a Duff said. And you left out the best part of that whole story when you recap that in your toast that night. Because after we left Assembly Hall, we got into your car and you said something I'll never forget. Maybe you have. But you looked at me as we were leaving Assembly Hall and you just said, why didn't you just ask him why he wears a red sweater? <laughs> that sounds like something I would say, all snippy, 20-year-old me. <laughs> yeah, because we were leaving and you were like, well, why didn't you just ask him why he wears a red sweater? I mean, you, did you really think he was going to be blown away with that line of questioning? Did you really think he was going to hire you as a member of his staff? Oh, I didn't say that, did I? You did, because when we got in the car, I said, hey, I thought it was a good question. <laughs> yeah, I must have been feeling my oats that night or something. <laughs> But I mean, let's let's admit it. I mean, Bobby Knight had that thousand yard stare that could just about freeze anybody in their tracks. So I was probably feeling a little bit embarrassed and a little bit cowed. And <laughs> it was an interesting evening. I have never felt a glare in my life like the one he was giving me when he was like making eye contact with me. That stare could have melted a cheese sandwich from across the room. I was thinking more like the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know, you basically popped the top off of the Ark of the Covenant and that was that. <laughs> it was a moment we're still talking about many years later, but it was not a moment that I was expecting to hear in your toast to me the night of my wedding. <laughs> Because at that point, we'd been pretty close for 12 years, so we had built a lot of memories. But what stood out to you about that night that was worth bringing that up at our wedding? Well, I mean, obviously your wedding is one of those singular occasions in your life. And we definitely had a lot of memories, but of all of those memories, I think that would probably stand out as a singular moment. Just because of who was involved in the situation that we were in. I, I don't know how much of the toast that you played back to everyone, but the fact that we got to sit on the floor of Assembly Hall and experience a, a basketball game between the Sycamores and the Hoosiers, which was the first time that that had occurred. Having floor passes like real press and getting to go to the press, press conference, that was all pretty impressive. And then to put the cherry on top of that lava cake 
you ask that question. <laughs> so I think it was a unique experience. And so I was bringing it up at another unique experience. Which thank you again for being my best man. That was a great moment uh, that you provided for everybody when you stood uh, right there at the head of the table and you were talking about it and you set it up by pulling out the credential that <laughs> you had. And I was thinking, wow, he still has that and he still carries that around after all these years. I am not an Indiana Hoosier. In some respects, I am an Indiana hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great way to put it. And I think we need to set this up because, as you know, a Duff said is heard all around the world. This podcast is accessible on many different outlets. It's easy to listen to from just about anywhere on your phone, your computer, your tablet. For the people that are listening who may not be familiar with what we're talking about, in 49 other states in the U.S., it's just basketball. But where we're from, Terre Haute, Indiana, and the state of Indiana, basketball is a religion. It is what encompasses your Friday night. You will find most Hoosiers packing some high school gym right now. In fact, at the time that we tape this, there's a huge basketball tournament for high school teams going on right now in our hometown back in Indiana. And it's going to draw thousands of people there. And then, of course, you've got college basketball is already in session. And a lot of people are getting excited and pumped up for that. So everywhere else, it's just basketball. But for us back home in Indiana, Matt, it's something very special. It definitely is. And as we were growing up, what you always saw on television, the big rivalry was Purdue versus IU, Gene Cady versus Bobby Knight. And I think that only served to make that night that much more impressive because he was someone of godlike status in the state. And while it might still be our religion and still be very important, the loss of Bobby Knight to Indiana basketball, I think moved it into a different season for most residents of our state, because I don't think anybody else has come even close to achieving that kind of status. I mean, Butler definitely did, but they haven't necessarily proven to have a a long shelf life for their program. So we're still waiting, as Optimus Prime might say, one of them to rise from our ranks and take the place in the 21st century that people like Bobby Knight and Gene Cady held in the 80s and 90s. So I think that for people listening around the world, they could probably talk about their favorite football stars and come close to understanding what it means, what basketball means to the state of Indiana. I'm glad that you brought up the IU-Purdue rivalry because if you grew up in Indiana, you were either black and gold or cream and crimson, and you always looked forward to those meetings between Knight and Katie. But if you went to Indiana State University like you and I did, we didn't really get to experience that because we were the smaller school we were not the school that was typically on the schedule for Indiana University or Purdue. It's changed a little bit lately. In fact, uh, Indiana State did open the season at Mackey Arena to take on the Boilermakers, a game that did not go the Sycamore's way. But 
at that time in 98, when they announced that we were going to play three games against the Hoosiers, it was something very special for us. It meant that we finally got to be on the same court as IU, and we were finally going to be in Assembly Hall, a place, like you said, we'd never been before, really. And this was our opportunity to be on the same stage with them. So when they announced that that game was going to take place, I, like so many other people, was ecstatic. I wasn't necessarily expecting a Sycamore win out of this, but it was an opportunity to go to Assembly Hall, a place I'd seen so many times on television, and to see Bob Knight for the first time in person, a guy that was revered in my house. My dad has paintings of him on the wall. He's got a signed basketball. He's considered God as far as we are concerned. So it was the opportunity of a lifetime to get to the game. But unlike you, at first, I didn't have that credential that you did. I could only dream about getting on the floor to be at the game. I didn't know until the night before that I was going to get that opportunity to come join you guys out there and be a part of that. And so when I got the phone call that there was a credential waiting for me at the campus radio station, all I had to do was go pick it up. I parked my car and I went running all the way to Dreiser Hall where the campus radio station was at Indiana State University. And somewhere along the way, my wallet fell out of my jacket. And I didn't know about that until I'd left campus several hours later. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, where's my wallet? (laughs) And it disappeared. And then thankfully, I called home and said, oh my gosh, mom, I lost my wallet. I don't know what I'm going to do. And she said, don't worry. Somebody found it. They found your number. They called. They're holding on to your wallet. So I was like, okay, step one is complete. I'll just have to get that on Monday because it was too late to go to the office of the person that retrieved it. So that basically I was okay with. I was like, okay, I'll just get my wallet. I just had to be very careful not to get pulled over if I'm driving anywhere because my license was in there. And then it dawned on me when I got to my job at Walmart that I had to be at work the next day. I was scheduled to work, so how am I going to get out of work and get to Assembly Hall that night because my schedule was going to conflict with tip-off, which was at 7 o'clock, and Terre Haute is about an hour from Bloomington, or much less if you rode with Matt Ulm, which we'll get to that in a minute. (laughs) And so at that point, I'm thinking, okay, how do I get out of work? How am I going to be able to get a day off? And I couldn't trade with anybody, so I was going to pull a Ferris Bueller and pretend to be sick. Okay, that'll work just fine. Well, there was just one problem with that, Matt. Mm -hmm. I had to work the boutique counter at Walmart that night, a place that I was well-suited for. I knew everything about perfume. It was actually the first night I'd ever worked the boutique counter and the only night that I ever worked the boutique counter at Walmart. In order to get certain perfumes out for people, you had to have a key to the counter. And Uh that key... Wound up going home with me that night. So I was like, oh no, I can't call in sick because I've got the only key to the boutique counter. What am I going to do now? So then I faked a doctor's note for my neighbor who was a doctor. And then I went in and I put on a performance for the ages. I was coughing. I was trying to disguise my voice, making it sound like I had a sore throat. 
I was trying to get some tears going to make sure that my eyes were watering. And I showed my manager the note, gave him back the key, and he said, all right, go home, get some rest, feel better, we'll see you later. I was like, they bought it. (laughs) I am in the clear. I don't have my wallet, but I got the next best thing. Taking me to Assembly Hall that night would be none other than you in your Honda. I love that little, it was just a little Honda Civic, you know, four-cylinder manual transmission. But I remember having a lot of fun just driving that car. And the road between Terre Haute and Bloomington at points gets very hilly and very curvy. And I remember liking to go pretty quickly on my way down to Bloomington. You were like Dominic Toretto that night. Yeah, yeah. And I can remember people making good use of the handles above the doors and so on and so forth when they rode in that car because it hugged around and slalomed around those curves pretty well. And I remember a few choice words and maybe Duff telling me a couple times, you know, where's the fire? (laughs) I did say that. So that's what I remember about that ride is that it was quick but fun. Coming up, what took place that night on the court, and then I meet the general. Fourth Coast Cider Works is the place to be for hard cider in Oakland County. Located in the main entrance to Canterbury Village, Fourth Coast is quality craftsmanship, quality hard cider. Stop by Fourth Coast and try some of their many flavors on tap. You can also take some home in a can or a howler. Fourth Coast is open Thursday through Sunday. For a complete list of ciders and hours, go to fourthcoastciderworks.com. The best hard cider is on the Fourth Coast. And that's a Duff said. Once again, I want to say thank you so much for hitting the play button on this podcast. And that includes two very special listeners, Michelle and Bethany. They recently became patrons of a Duff set. Now for as little as $2 a month or $24 a year, you can help this show to continue to grow and provide the content that you enjoy. And if you become a patron of a Duff said, we have got a lot of great gifts in store for you. We've got bumper stickers. We've got t-shirts. Heck, I'll even record your voicemail message. So if you're having trouble ever figuring out what to say, I'll say it for you. And that's a Duff said. If you'd like to become a patron of A Duff Said, all you got to do is go to patron.podbean.com backslash A Duff Said. So we get to Assembly Hall. What was that like for you? Had you been there prior to that? Well, I actually attended IU my first year of college. So from the fall of 95 to the spring of 96. And I was housed in Briscoe Shoemaker or Disco Briscoe, as they called it. I don't know if they still call it that, but at which you had a pretty good view of Assembly Hall, but did not attend any games while I was there. At that point, it was nigh on impossible to get tickets. You actually had a lottery for students to get tickets back then. And so had never attended a game before, but had seen it from afar for two semesters. And like we said, it was a very storied and hallowed hall. 
So I remember driving up and just being very excited just to enter in. And when we got there, it's not the most attractive building to me. I remember it being very tall, but also very close because it had balconies that came really close to the courts. It was like a lot taller than it was wide, what you expect from most stadiums. So it was almost like the, uh, I don't know how many of your listeners are Star Trek fans, but it always reminded me of the Klingon court where it was just very tall with people looming over the top of you as you were down on the floor and made it seem very impressive, but also very oppressive at the same time. And very loud, obviously, once everybody started cheering. Yeah, it was a great atmosphere. I remember the first time I took it all in, the first thing I went for was the banners. Because if you're an IU fan, it is all about the banners. Now at that time, I was an IU fan, but I was making that transition into being an Indiana State Sycamore fan, seeing as how I went there. And the Mm -hmm. program is starting to make a turn for the better. This was a program at Indiana State that suffered mightily after Larry Bird left. Not long after he left, ISU basketball went into a nosedive. It lost year after year. They had a consecutive streak of losing seasons that was 18 years long. But the year before, there was reason for optimism. Because they had turned things around, and suddenly they're a winning program again. They're not, they're not a powerhouse. They're not a contender for the Missouri Valley Conference yet. But they finally had a winning season, and they were getting the players that, you know, wanted to go to IU, but for whatever reason didn't get that opportunity. So this was a kind of like a revenge game for them, in a manner of speaking. This was their chance to prove their critics in Cream and Crimson wrong, by not taking them, and Indiana State did just that in the first half. They went on a tear in that first half, and by halftime, they were up 19 points. And I was like trying to figure out what had just happened, because at the time, IU was nationally ranked. They were 22 in the country, and Indiana State University jumped out ahead of them by 19 points at the break, When I looked up at the scoreboard, and we're sitting right underneath the basket, right there on the court, I just was like, I was just as blown away by seeing the banners as I was seeing Indiana State hanging 19 points on Indiana University. What were you thinking at that moment? Obviously, I was ecstatic that we were ahead at the half, and we had a strong team. I remember knowing that. And I thought it was interesting because you talked about the fact that how many losing seasons that we'd had and how beat up the program had been. And really, I don't know much about Larry Bird's team, but obviously he was an extraordinary talent and brought up the level of everyone that was around him. And one of the things that Bobby Knight was very famous for was not necessarily having star players or building a team around one singular talent but about getting the best out of everybody that was on the team, taking even medium players and making them excellent. And that's what I remember thinking about our program is that we had a lot of solid players and then working together as a team, we're accomplishing great things. So it was interesting to see a team that was sort of built the Bobby Knight way 
going up against Bobby Knight. And at the half, I'm sure that you, same as I, were thinking that, well, we're up 19 points. It's just going to keep on. We're just going to keep trucking right along. And isn't this great? We're going to be here for the first time the Sycamores have played the Hoosiers at Assembly Hall, and they're just going to flatten them. (laughs) Well, at the time, I remember I saw my buddy Rich, who was our sports director at the campus radio station. We went back to the press room, and I said, by no means is this game over, but can you believe this? We might actually do something miraculous tonight. Something very special could happen. And I just went back to those banners, and I kept thinking, all this history that we're seeing right now, they're always talking about their banners and all the things that they've accomplished and everything that IU has done over the years and what a revered figure Bob Knight is. And now his protege, former assistant coach Royce Waltman, who's now coaching the Sycamores, has got us up by 19. And all of a sudden, you know, you're starting to think, wow, Indiana State University basketball really is back. Now, in the second half, the wheels kind of fell off instead. And we ended up losing that game 76-70. to And then the game ends, but there was a feeling that we were actually on the verge of making a comeback. That after so many years of being forced to just look back on 1979 as like our year, and then we didn't really have anything else to point to, suddenly we were the underdogs that nearly got the job done at Assembly Hall And so then we go to the press room and we talk to Royce Waltman and a few of the players from Indiana State University. And then Bob Knight walks into the press room as he's done so many other times in the past. But this was the first time I was in the same room with him. And I'm sure that was your circumstance, too. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It was a larger than life figure that was standing next to me. I'd seen this guy on TV so many times. I knew his history of blowing up at members of the media. I knew that he had a short fuse and all it took was one guy to really get under his skin and to light that powder keg. I listened to so many of the questions that he started fielding from members of the press, but I just kept thinking to myself, I gotta ask him something. I gotta get an answer out of Bob Knight. I've gotta actually engage Bob Knight. I gotta have a conversation with Bob Knight. But in my head, I'm thinking, well, what do I ask him? And back in 1998, I'll admit it, I was not the interviewer that I am now. I spend so much time figuring out how to craft my questions, how to go about asking them, what's the best way I can get a response from somebody. Because over the years, I've had people that could talk and give great answers. And then there are other people that didn't really give the best answer, so I just had to rethink things in my head on how to rephrase my questioning. But in Mm -hmm. 98, I was still in college. I was brand new to journalism. I had never really done anything like that before. So it wasn't like I knew exactly what I was going to ask him in the way that I would have asked him a question today. Back then, I was a terrible interviewer. And I didn't really know how to conduct anything like that. So in retrospect, I should have just shut the hell up and not said a word that evening. But like I said, I had to ask him something. And for whatever reason, the only thing that popped in my head was, what do you think about ISU? Is ISU on his radar? Is he like, is this going to be like a rivalry? What does he think about Indiana State? So then that's when I throw out the question. So overall, were you impressed by ISU tonight? 
what the hell have I said since I've been in here? I mean, do, do you understand English? And he just looked at me and he asked me that question. And I said, yes, I do. Because I, I actually did say to him when he asked me if I understood English, I said, yes, I do. And that's when he goes, oh, God damn. He didn't want any part of me at that point. And everything in my body just seized up at that moment. Like I froze. And I remember there were a couple of media members who came up to me and said, yeah, that question had no chance. You should have held back on that. And my buddy Rich, who was there, who was also at my wedding, and then we were able to recant that story 12 years later. So there was the three of us talking about that. I remember he was like, are you serious? Did you really just do that? And he was laughing so hard at me. And I just remember thinking, okay, we can go now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, but again, I believe that I said in my toast that it was one of the things that's very endearing and also a strength of yours is that you don't have that kind of fear you know there's i'm sure a lot of people that would sit back and say i need to formulate the perfect question and would just wait for their opportunity and while it might have been better if your question had been a little bit more well considered and crafted but you still had the strength of character to throw something out there and the entire reason for us being in that position was a so that we could gather media for our respective agencies back at isu and to document the event but it's something that ISU didn't necessarily focus on in a lot of its marketing back then, but which it does now, which is experiential learning. It afforded us the opportunity to get thrown into a situation that was generally reserved for adults or people with more experience and see what happens. And as younglings in the media business, it was an invaluable lesson, I think, for all of us. <laughs> so, and it didn't cost Rich or me or Mitch or anybody anything because you were the one that provided the lesson by sticking your head in the lion's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great way to describe that. And I will say that I most definitely learned from it because you really do have to listen to what your interviewee is saying when you're asking them questions or you're in a media scrum or a press conference and you're fielding questions. Otherwise, that's a moment like I experienced that's just waiting to happen. And I can honestly say that I never really heard the end of that. When we got back to campus the following Monday, I got my wallet back. So I was able to retrieve that. Thankfully, the guy who found my wallet didn't know who I was, didn't know anything about it. And that was great. And I was like, okay, we can get through the day now. We're going to get through this. No big deal. So I walk into my audio communications class. And the director of the campus radio station, Dave Sabini, long may he rest in peace, had written on the wall that day a stick figure image of me talking to this giant character of Bob Knight. And Bob Knight's got this big air quote that just simply says, dumbass. 
on it. And that was their way of really tearing into me. Oh, everybody had their comments then. And I remember my professors in the journalism department, they also were like, what happened? Haven't we taught you better than this? Don't you know to listen carefully to what they're saying? I'll bet you never do that again. He is Matthew Ulm. He was the best man at my wedding and a guy who I have built a lot of great memories with. Matt, thank you so much for being a part of this edition of A Duff Said. So overall, how do you think this interview went? Are, are you serious? I mean, have you been listening for the past 20 minutes? I mean, do you understand English? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> Thank you so much for being a part of this. I couldn't have thought of a better way to end it than that. It's always a pleasure, Duff. And on that note, that wraps up this edition of A Duff Said. But on my next episode, I take an even closer look at what was an exciting but brief rivalry between the Sycamores and the Hoosiers. The athletic director at the time, Larry Gallo, called Bobby Knight, saying I was thinking about hiring Royce Waltman. Knight says, quote... Waltman, your recruits, they won't be as tall, fast, or high-leaping as those that go to a Big Ten school like IU, but he'll get those guys a little bit below, just a notch, then those we'll get, and they'll come in here and beat us. Bob Knight predicted Royce could come in and beat him, and he almost did that night, and uh, he did, obviously, the next year. That's coming soon, so be sure to check out my website, aduffsaid.com, for that and many other exciting episodes of this podcast. Until next time, this is Duff Tyler reminding you that if Duff said it, it must be true, because that's what a Duff said. <laughs>